Asia Pacific Currents. News and labour issues from the Asia Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at 9 o'clock on Community Radio 3CR. All groups of the world should unite to fight this greedy capitalist. Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents for another Saturday morning. Good morning. That's right. That's right. It's a lovely uh, day, even though it's a, it's a Friday for us, but, but it's a very foggy Friday. So that's nice, different. Uh, I know. I thing, feel like we are well. no matter what the weather is, Pierre, you're just going to say it's a lovely day. <laughs> How optimistic, how bright and sunny of you, how uh, sunny is your disposition, I believe, is the way we would describe that. I'd like you to know uh, yes, no, the, one, no one has ever described me as having a sunny disposition. <laughs> well, Giselle, you'd be happy to know that I think the sun is expected to come out later today as well. I'll get some washing on then. Yes, same, same. Well, you... And- you are listening to Asia Pacific Currents, which is brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on the web or the w's.aawl.org.au. We're on Facebook and Twitter, so find us on those social media platforms where we continue to post news and current affairs from the Asia Pacific region. Pierre, you've got our feature story for today. That's right. That's right. Uh, using our, our technology. I um, spoke a couple of days ago to um, Thara Kuhn, who is the program manager at Central, which is the Center for Alliance of Labor and Human Rights in Cambodia. And um, he talked about the the uh, recent research they did about the extraordinary level of debt uh, that garments workers have, and obviously, as people would uh, uh, would guess, it's all um, it's all because of the terrible wages and conditions that they uh, they have. So that will be in the second half of the uh, of the program, and um, but. You're about to say something. I was going to say, but first up, news from around the region. I just wanted to check you didn't have any other announcements before I launched into the news. I was actually going to introduce you. So very good. I'm glad that after all these years, we're still in sync with one another, Pierre. That's right. But we do have to do a shout out to a um, to one of our listeners, don't we? Oh yes. Just let me bring this up on my other monitor. Uh, We did want to extend a thank you to John, um, one of our listeners who sent us a, uh, well, um, John contributed to our Radiothon with a donation. So thank you, John. But also wrote to us and said, there's nothing like listening to your show to realise how unbelievably lucky we are here in Australia. Um, I won't go into the rest of the letter, but thank you. And yes, it is a reminder. I just wanted to say that um, uh, lucky is one way to look at it, but also it is the um, the way that capitalism developed in Australia and um, also how the labour movement de- de- developed in Australia and that a lot of the what we call lucky is... Um, is because of the history and legacy of struggle in this country. And I know Comrade John um, wasn't invisibilising this group of workers and no doubt John as a comrade would um, uh, obviously share our solidarity sentiments, but there are a lot of people in Australia who aren't so lucky and um, 
uh, you know, particularly our um, comrades, our Indigenous comrades who are still battling the Black Lives Matter campaign. There was another death in custody in the last week. Um, and uh, I think that um, the conditions for Aboriginal people in this country are, uh, you know, comparable to, to that of what we call the third world. Yep. All right. That's, that's very true. And uh, Giselle, and thanks, um, John. Yes, that was a long, waffly way to say thank you, John. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening and thanks for your contribution. We should get on with news from around the region. We're going to start in the Philippines. In the same week that President Duterte's government passed a new far-reaching anti-terrorism law, the killing spree against government critics continued to claim new victims. Early this month, on the 7th of July, um, Giovannicio Senados, a 62-year-old high-profile lawyer at the Manila office of the city prosecutor, was gunned down while in his car by, by unidentified gunmen. Giovencio was not only known for his work against corruption, but had been very active in the last few months, defending and advocating for people that had been arrested by policemen for minor violations during COVID-19. In the last four years, up to 50 judges, prosecutors and lawyers have been gunned down in the Philippines. And we go now to Iran, where this week thousands of workers from the half tapas sugarcane mill passed the first month of their strike. Their strike started about wages and conditions, as well as unpaid wages. This week, four organisers, Mohammed Kanifa, Muslim Shezmaza, Yosef Bahami, and Ibrahim Abbasi Manjazi, were arrested by the local authorities. The state governor then used the issue of their freedom as a bargaining chip to end the strike. The uh, workers rejected this attempted blackmail and organized another major demonstration in the streets of uh, Shush in Khuzestan province in, in southwestern Iran. That's the closest city to the sugar mill. And the slogan of this protest were free all jail workers, free in, in prison half tape workers, Workers would rather die than succumb to a life of indignity and workers are in prison while the oppressors run free. Many other workers joined in as the march went through the streets of Sush. Following this action, the four workers were released and the strike is continuing. So more power to you, comrades. And in Turkey, in the industrial city of Izmir in eastern Turkey, four women are continuing to fight for the well-known union-busting company of SF Trade, a global supplier of textile and leather goods. Five years ago, the company dismissed 14 workers for joining the union and then proceeded to sue the workers and the union for commercial damages. In the second half of last year, the workers started to organise and demand less overtime and more pay. In late October, the company dismissed two of the main organisers, Aisha and Pinar, by forcing them to sign resignation letters. The company then followed up with the dismissal of two more activists, Nurkan and Sebchan, in December and January, respectively. The four women have continued a picket line outside the factory since then. There's an international campaign in support of these women workers initiated by Industrial. So get on that website and support the campaign. And remaining in West Asia, we go to Iraq, where the Im impact of endemic corruption with a fall in oil revenues is continuing to put pressure on the working class in Iraq. 
the government has started to shed jobs in the electricity and oil sectors, while at the same time imposing tax rises of between 10 to 20% on salaried workers and retirees. This has led to an upsurge of workers' industrial action over the last few weeks, with electricity workers striking southern Iraq, oil workers in the Adab field in southern Iraq also, and teachers strike in the cities of Sulaymania and Dohuk for not receiving their salaries. Unfortunately, the Iraqi government has responded to these industrial action with force, killing at least three workers and injuring 10 others. In, an attempt, in a further attempt to hinder the ongoing mass protest in central Baghdad, the government is trying to outlaw the three-wheeler taxis that have been indispensable for the protesters over the last nine months. And in Malaysia last week, a group of six Al Jazeera journalists were detained and interrogated by Malaysian police and are facing possible charges of sedition and defamation. Their alleged crime was to have produced a documentary that reported on the plight of undocumented migrant workers during the coronavirus pandemic. The documentary showed scores of migrant workers being arrested during raids under tight lockdowns. Malaysian authorities have accused the journalists of fabricating evidence and being one-sided, even though the relevant Malaysian authorities had repeatedly declined requests for interviews by the journalists. Human rights activists and trade unionists see this case as another example of diminishing press freedom in that country. And uh, we now go to India where the um, economic and social impact of COVID-19 can be uh, seen in the industrial city of Aurangabad, about 200 kilometers inland from the coastal mega city of Mumbai. There, the Bajaj Auto Waluj Auto Plant employs around 8,000 workers, uh, both uh, casual or contract. Their workforce has felt the impact of the virus with around 250 workers falling sick to it and five workers dying from it. The company has responded by ordering a nine-day lockdown, which will see the workers' wages being cut in half. Due to lower sales, the company is confident to make up the shortfall in output within a month, but of course, the workers will never see their salary again that they have lost. And returning to Turkey, where repression is destroying the legal system there, Ebru Timtik and Aytak Unshal, two imprisoned lawyers who are still waiting for their trial, have been on hunger strike since the start of the year. The organisation that they're a part of, the Progressive Lawyers Association, has been declared a terrorist organisation by the Turkish government. In 2018, a judge had ordered their release, but before this was enacted, the government replaced the judge and overturned the decision. Since the attempted coup in July 2016, the government headed by President Erdogan has instituted a far-ranging campaign of repression against any critic. Lawyers and the judicial system are increasingly being targeted with lawyers now being identified with their clients, most of whom are charged with terrorism charges. As of February of this year, more than 1,500 lawyers have been charged with another 600 arrested and detained. So far, around 350 lawyers have been sentenced to a total of 2,150 years in prison on the grounds of membership of an armed terrorist organisation or of spreading terrorist propaganda. Just insane, isn't it? I as. It as I was looking at that story, Pierre, I remember that some 
15,000 workers were public servants were arrested during the 2016 coup and I don't know what has happened to them um, but also this uh, identifying lawyers with their clients is an absolute recipe for no person accused of terrorism being able to get legal representation just astounding that's right and the laws are so far-reaching that it's actually very hard even at the best of times to actually defend yourself against these laws, even if you had a lawyer. We're going to go to a community announcement and then we will be back with our feature story for the day. Melbourne's local documentary film festival is going online and nationwide from the 30th of June until the 15th of July. Canvassing an eclectic range of documentaries from South by Southwest, Slam Dance and Tribeca to Music, video games and true crime, with over 55% locally made in Melbourne and across Australia. Check it out at www.mdff.org.au. Prices start from $8 a stream. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. What a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. And you're listening to Community Radio 3CR. This is Asia Pacific Currents. We are with you until 9.30 this morning. Giselle and Pierre in the studio with you. We're recording from home. Actually, today is Friday, but you will be hearing this on Saturday. Pierre, what's our feature story? 
Go on. That's right. I was uh, I was fortunate enough uh, earlier in the week to speak to Taro Kun, who is the program manager at Central uh, in Cambodia, which is a centre for Alliance of Labour and Human Rights, about the um, alarming levels of debt that uh, garment workers uh, in Cambodia have, and about the um, the microfinancing scam, really, that's actually targeting the garment workers with disastrous results. You were part of a project that looked at the debt levels of garment workers in Cambodia. Can you tell us what the main findings were? Just give you a very quick uh, background of the uh, research a bit. Uh, I just want to make sure, make it clear that this uh, report was not statistically represent all of the MFI's clients within the country. And also, it does not represent the whole density of population of garment and footwear workers within the industry in Cambodia. But the whole purpose of the report is to seek and highlight the issue of the, of the workers in the target groups of garment workers that were suspended and got laid off from three factories based in uh, Phnom Penh and, and one factory in uh, other a province of uh, uh, Cambodia. So the, the main finding of of the reports it's uh, it's highlight regarding the level of debt of garment workers within the within the uh, industry, and it poses various uh, a concern uh, for us uh, as the trade union support group organizations uh, from workers that we have interviews out of those. Uh, hundreds and sixty two workers that we have interviewed, at least a worker have one loan to the microfinance. And the most common type of the loans uh, was a micro loan from a microfinance bank. Uh, hundreds uh, and six workers that we have interviewed, which is amount of sixty five percent at least have one uh, micro loan. Those workers, uh, in order to pay their debt back to the microfinance, is that workers already eating less food, which is uh, 70%. They have taken loans, 51% saying that they have to eat less of food during the pandemic and during the work uh, in the last uh, few months. Of those uh, uh, interviews that we, we had, is that workers already sold their land, which is around 15% of workers that we have interviewed have already sold their land in order to pay back their debt. And others uh, of uh, 16 workers, it's, it's planning to sell their land in the future. And uh, at least uh, 45% of workers saying that they won't be able to to pay back their, their debt to the microfinance during the work suspensions. So this is it poses really a serious concern relating to the livelihoods and the livings of workers uh, while they lose their job and lose their income. And besides uh, working to support their basic needs and they have a responsibilities and burdens uh, and difficulties to pay back their loans. An average of uh, numbers of those who are having a numbers of independence in the family, it will be post more difficulty with the families. As you explained, this was a, a small study of some garment workers in Cambodia, but of course there are somewhere around uh, 750,000 garment workers in Cambodia. Do you think that this level of debt is widespread, is 
found elsewhere in uh, the whole sector for garment workers? Even though it's it's, it's a small portion of, of the reports, but uh, it it really reflect the the realities of workers uh, within the industry and the widespread of workers taking loans from migrant microfinance. As you have read the report, is that the most common things that they pay for uh, is uh, one is that to support uh, for their living. And second is that uh, to purchase for their lands or homes, uh, which is the most necessity needs as a human being, as the uh, as a, as a dignity of human being in order to have the rights to housing. So those are the most common uh, that workers unable to to build their home and to be able to pay for their homes and from their income uh, from the low wages. In the last uh, two decades, there's been working that the living wage is not decent enough to support their family and their living. So uh, the, the whole purpose, uh, the common purpose of taking loan is to, to build their house and, and to buy the uh, uh, motorbikes and other necessities in order to support their, their living. So those are the most uh, basics uh, that they have uh, taken loan from microfinance. Some have uh, said that they are paying for for their land and in order to pay back uh, their debt is that they have to work uh, in order to earn more extra income by taking over time. So despite the, the lower wages and the capacity and be able to pay back for their loan, workers have to, to, to take uh, extra hours of overtime and workers have to work during holidays uh, to earn more extra income. So they have to keep a big portions of their income in order to pay their debt. So they have no balance uh, with their account at the end of the month. So pretty much it's just to work in support for the basic cost, basic living uh, of the month that's been worked for. So these, we can see this trend that carry out from, from time to time that worker have no options in order to, uh, to support their livings. So they have to take the loan and in order to, to pay back their loan is they rely on the whole income of their money income. We'll um, come back to the question of the living wage uh, later, but uh, just for our listeners, um, who are these micro lending banks and how widespread are they in Cambodia? You see the, the, the industry, this sector is very booming and operate legally uh, and, and widespread across the countries and communities uh, that uh, workers and also the whole population of citizens are leaving. And there's more than uh, 50 microfinance institutions that's been registered with the uh, National Bank of Cambodia. And the whole purpose and operation of those business is to uh, design a program to support the, the livelihood and to give these loaning uh, support programs to build the community and business. I think that is the whole program that's been uh, designed and each of this expansion of this microfinance um, institution has been based on a broader program that built upon type of program that's been funded by the development aid or agency or development agencies such as Australia also has been funding type of the programs of the microfinance institution in Cambodia. So uh, the whole incentive of benefits of business, making business from uh, providing loan, I think there's very huge uh, income benefits for this sector 
that encourage more uh, private sector to expand in terms of uh, their business operation and reach out to the uh, community. So that that the uh, a market that has been uh, makes very a big profitability of income to the uh, the business owner. I think is one of the uh, indicator that uh, the question about the interest rate, which is Cambodia cannot compare with other country that we are the country who have the highest interest rate that has been set and outlined by the uh, guideline that's been uh, issued by the National Bank of Cambodia. So the profitability of having a high interest or having more density of clients within the sector, I think that that encourage and motivation of business are expanding and, uh, and, and booming within the sector in Cambodia. For a lot of our listeners that have been with us for many years, they would know that we've covered the um, living conditions and the wages of garment workers in Cambodia before and there have been a lot of um, campaigns in the past but obviously the workers' wages um, and conditions are still quite bad in Cambodia. Yeah, a thousand of Cambodian garment workers in Cambodia struggled you know, to raise their living wage and living standard within the industry. I think that in the last two decades is that workers are a lack of living wage that has forced uh, these uh, the thousand of government workers to take a large and larger debt in order to survive. And uh, I think the poor living wage that has been uh, there for decades was not improve uh, the livelihoods and, and, and the livings and inflation and support the basic needs for, uh, for workers from, from year to year. Uh, that is one of the uh, uh, pro- problematic uh, issues with the industry that we as the labor advocate and trade union, particularly the independent trade union, has been advocate for the living wage for so many years. And even now, the uh, the industry are also facing with this uh, issue. One is that during the pandemic hit down, which is leads to the numbers of factory has been suspended jobs and numbers of factory has shut it down and has been hit hard to the industry uh, to guarantee the, uh, the the job security for workers that is one of the most concerned at the same time is that Cambodia is now facing the uh, the issue of withdrawal of EPA the, the trade preferences with the industry because of this uh, issue of the democratic space here and uh, we'll, we'll be making more worse to the situation of workers at the ground, which is now workers would not be able to, to be advocate and to, to push for uh, a living wage in the next uh, negotiation round for this year. And uh, I think it will be posed even more vulnerable and difficult for workers to be able to stand and advocate for that living wage at a certain uh, standpoint. So, it's a lot of challenge uh, with the within the industry at the, at this stage, and I think uh, we are now uh, struggle to see from time to time, from month to month, uh, that workers are facing uh, a mass layoff, uh, factory shutting down without compensation, uh, legal requirements was not a guarantee to ensure the basic needs, uh, the labor rights, uh, the basic rights for workers, and these will be posed in a high and long term effects to the livelihood. Uh, our workers during the uh, pandemic and will not be questioned about 
uh, brands are, are not uh, posting orders uh, within the industry and will be resolved the numbers of factories will shutting down. Thank you um, for that. You've given us um, a very good um, overview of the situation for garment workers and uh, the problems uh, that they have been having but are also having in order to um, increase uh, the living wage and conditions. So we can only uh, wish you all, all the best and, and, uh, and are in solidarity with the struggles of the Cambodian garment workers. So thank you very much um, for this um, interview. Thank you. And uh, you've been listening to an interview with Taro Kun, who is from the Centre for Alliance of Labour and Human Rights in Cambodia, about the uh, debt levels of garment workers in Cambodia. That does bring us to the end of the show. Thank you to all of our listeners for all of your support. We do love it when we receive mail from you. So, and again, thank you, John, and thank you to everybody else that... Um, is sitting at home listening. Um, we did make our Radiothon target this year, so a huge thank you to everybody's effort during this COVID-19 pandemic. And we will be back next Saturday with more news and current affairs from the Asia-Pacific region. That's all for me, Giselle Hannah. And Pierre Morrow, and have a great day.